and where our passage is going to take us. Do you understand that your status in Christ is free, but at the same time, slave? As Christians, we have the status of free, but at the same time, we have the status of slave. You and I, as followers of Christ, have a master. He owns us. We are his possession. And we are his slaves. You are free, free, forever you're free. Yes, to be slaves of Christ. That's how the scripture paints it for us. Now, this might not be as fun or give you chills down your spine like when talking about freedom, but this is the way that the scripture describes our status in Christ. And so we're going to dive into God's word. We're not going to shrink away from it. So turn with me to Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. And I will read this for us about our service as slaves. It says, starting in verse 5 of Ephesians chapter 6, it says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will, this you will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that we are free in Christ. Help us to know what that means and at the same time, help us to know what it means to be slaves of Christ, to be obedient to you, submissive to you as our master. We ask that you would be with us today. Challenge and encourage our hearts as we open up your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before I break some of this down, I just want to tell you, we're actually going to get into some, some stuff about slavery. So w- when we think of slavery, we have a, 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 an idea in our head that comes from our recent past between, you know, uh, westernized slavery from the 17th and 19th centuries, mainly taking slaves from Africa. And um, that's our framework. We're going we're gonna to challenge that framework and we're going to look at how the Bible paints it and then, and then how Paul addresses these slaves. But before we do that, there's something that I want to point out that is underlying all of these verses. And I already mentioned it. It's the reality that we are slaves of Christ. So let's just be real for one second. When we hear that we're free... We get excited. We get motivated, maybe. We maybe even get nostalgic. We feel a deep respect. Reverence can overtake us. We become thankful, grateful. We feel blessed that we're free. When we hear that we're slaves, however, we don't have the same feeling. Instead, because of how we understand slavery, we get angry. We, we maybe get bitter. Maybe we're confused. What do you mean we're slaves? We get resentful. Slavery invokes thoughts of oppression torment, evil even. When we talk about slavery, we often say we hate slavery. Especially as Americans who value freedom so much, how can we even tolerate the mention or the idea of slavery? Well, what's tricky, church, is is this. Let me tell you this. Everyone is a slave, according to the Bible. Everyone is a slave, according to the Bible, in a spiritual sense. Your neighbors are slaves, Your coworkers are slaves, your friends are slaves, 
you're sitting in this church building right now, you are a slave and everybody driving by the church as fast as they can to get away from here, they're slaves too. Maybe not in the sense that you're thinking, but in a spiritual sense. The Bible lays it out fairly easily for us. There's not a lot of options. There's two. Either you are a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. Two options. Slave to sin, slave to Christ. That's it. So turn with me to Romans. Just go back a little bit. Hold your place in Ephesians. Turn back to Romans chapter 6. Now we're going to start in verse 16. Paul is actually going to lay these two options out for us pretty clearly. Now Paul's language is confusing because it's Paul um, and he's quite difficult to understand. But we'll try to make sense of this as best as we can. Romans 6, starting in verse 16, says this. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have been committed, and having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when we were slaves of sin, we were free in regard to righteousness... But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what Paul is essentially saying is here, Out the gate, the way we all start by nature, we're slaves of sin. Our owner is sin. We've relinquished ourselves to the master who is sin. Our desire is to serve sin. Our obedience is to our master sin. But then it says that we are free in one sense... We're slaves to sin, we serve sin, we're obedient to sin, but we're free in one sense, and that's free in regard to righteousness. What is he saying there? He's saying, well, if you serve sin, what does it matter if you do what is right or wrong before God? You're free, you're not obligated, because your master is sin, not God. Simply means that they're free to do whatever they want in regard to what God commands them if their master is sin. They don't serve God, they serve sin, so don't worry about that God guy. Sin as a master is cruel, manipulative, harsh, spiteful, hateful. And Paul says that his ultimate goal, sin's ultimate goal in your life is death for you. But in Christ, it says we're set free from sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. We've been set free from the bondage of sin. We're no longer bound to sin as our master. But take notice that it doesn't say we're 100% completely free, for in being set free from sin, we are now bound to Christ. In being set free from sin, automatically Jesus Christ becomes our master. 
He's the only one that can set us free, and then we transition to him being our master. But Christ, unlike sin, is a kind master. He's gentle. His burden is easy. His yoke is light. He's caring and loving towards those he calls his own. He takes us as rebellious slaves and adopts us into his family, calls us his sons and daughters, children and heirs. He's a kind and loving master. So what does it mean to be set free in Christ? It means that we are free from sin and it means that we are now bound in obedience to our new master, Jesus. It's not complete freedom from everything. You can do whatever you want. So now you're bound in obedience to Jesus. In the same way that we willingly submit to the laws of the land in order to maintain our freedom here, we submit willingly to what Jesus obeys, what Jesus commands for us and we obey. So why is this important, this idea of being slaves to Christ to this particular passage? Well, I want you to think of it this way. In Ephesians 5 and 6, you have these different uh, teachings about how to live in Christ-like relationships. This is all about relationships. Remember, we talked about husbands and wives, children and parents. Now we're talking about slaves and masters. These are all relationships that people have. One way of looking at it is this. You want to grow in your relationship with God? You want to be more like Him? You want to grow in your love for Him, your trust in Him, your dependence, your hope, your faith in Him? Then use the relationships that God has put in your life as a means for your growth in your relationship with God. It's how He set it up. So in wives, in submitting to your husbands, you grow in your ability to submit to God. Husbands, in your sacrificial love for your wives, you're learning and growing in your understanding of how God has sacrificially loved you. Children, as you obey your parents, you are learning and growing in how to obey and submit to God. Parents, as you learn not to provoke your children, you are learning and growing in God's patient love for you. And the same is true in our passage today. But the same is true also that in every one of these relationships, Christ is our motivation and our example. Each and every passage. So if you remember, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents. How? In the Lord. And the same is true here. To slaves, Paul says, obey your masters, verse 5, as to Christ. Verse 6, as slaves to Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord. Then he talks to masters. Masters, he says, treat your slaves right, knowing that your master is in heaven. The motivation and the example is always pointing back to Jesus. So, to understand this today, what Paul is about to say, we need to understand that first and foremost... We were slaves of sin, but Christ has set us free. We are now bound to him, our new master, our gracious, loving Savior, Jesus Christ. That is, that is underlying this whole passage that we have. So first and foremost, church, we are slaves of Christ who need to submit to our master. That's how this works. Now, this is a great opportunity for me to pause and to say something here. A little challenge. If you're here today and you're claiming that Jesus is your master and yet your life reflects 
a pattern of submission to sin, you're in grave danger. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot stand in the middle between two raging armies and expect to come out alive. That's what we call a traitor. You need to pick a side. Either you serve sin or you serve the Lord. Those are your options. If you're consistently submitting to sin, don't wonder why you feel far from God. If you ever feel far from God, if you're, if you're submitting to sin, don't wonder. You should know the answer. Sin separates you from your master. You want to be close to your master, you've got to do what he says. You can't call Jesus Lord on Sunday and sin Lord on Monday and expect to be close in a vibrant relationship with God. It just doesn't work that way. Don't be so foolish. So with that framework in our head, slaves to sin, set free from sin, now slaves to Christ, to serve our gracious Lord, how does Paul then address slaves, those who have been bought by another human being and are owned by them and don't have freedom? How does Paul talk to those people and to masters? So look at verse 5 and 6 with me. I'm going to read these again, and then we're going to kind of break some of this down. It says in verse 5, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So who is Paul addressing? Paul is addressing Christian slaves, those that have Christ as their master and an earthly master who owns them. This passage is actually difficult for us to apply today because we have this framework of slavery in our minds. So before we can even move on, I want to just give you guys some facts about slavery that Paul is talking about. Its similarities and its differences from how we understand slavery as primarily out of Africa into the Western world from the 17th and 19th centuries. It's different in some, some tangible ways. So I have some slides to make this easier. Um, for, for one, slavery is common in the Bible, both the Old and New Testament. From the patriarchs all the way into the New Testament and the writings of the apostles, slavery is common. It is a normal part of life in Bible times. There were slaves everywhere. It's a little bit different, but it was very, very common. It's talked about very often. The Bible does not condemn nor condone slavery. Okay? Now, this one's a little tricky. So what, what I'm saying here is this. The Bible doesn't outright... Uh, directly say that slavery is right or wrong. It doesn't do that. It just doesn't say much about it. What Paul does is he accepts slavery as a societal norm. It's a normal function of society. In saying that, he's not condoning slavery, but he's also not condemning slavery. So I want you to be careful how you understand this because what I'm saying is the, Paul is not, the, the Bible is not condoning nor condemning slavery, but what the Bible does do is it changes how people view slavery. Paul addresses slavery in a different manner. The way that Paul and other New Testament writers and Jesus himself talk about people sets the framework for everybody being equally made in the image of God. The biblical framework is the framework that we use to abolish slavery. So it's not that the Bible is silent on these things, it's just not explicit when it says slavery is wrong or right. Okay? So Paul challenges the slavery of his day. Now, 
Specifically, what does slavery look like in Paul's day? Well, it's actually quite interesting. In Paul's day, over one-third of the population of Rome were slaves. One-third of the population of Rome were slaves. They're the primary workforce, is how they were viewed. Racial factors, unlike our view of slavery, did not play a role. Any race, any gender, any people group could be slaves. Many slaves in Paul's day could be expected to be freed and emancipated during their lifetime. So much so that a Roman emperor actually put out a decree saying that slaves could not be emancipated before they were 30 years old because too many slaves were being freed and it was messing up the society's workforce. It was very common for slaves to be a slave for a time and then gain their freedom. Very different than the way slavery was the way we view it. Many slaves worked in a variety of specialized positions, like being a doctor. Slaves were doctors. And so they were educated and trained for those, heavily, those high positions, unlike the way we view slavery where most slaves were illiterate and kept down and not trained or taught how to even think. They were just suppressed. This they were encouraged to grow in their understanding and skills. Freed slaves, I think this is very telling, became Roman citizens most of the time and developed a client relationship with their masters, which says something about the way in which they were treated. Slaves had few legal rights. This is very similar. Few legal rights. Slave owners could do essentially whatever they wanted to their slaves. They could beat their slaves. They could be cruel to their slaves. They could even separate their slaves from their family that was born as they were slaves. And while they were allowed to do that, this was heavily discouraged, not encouraged at all. So the majority of people who owned slaves in this day were, were even though they owned them, they were generally favorable to their slaves, kind to them. Not all the time. Of course, there's exceptions. But generally, slaves were treated as well as they could be. So when we think of slavery here, when Paul's addressing slaves, we need to think of slavery like this. Okay? So we need to think of slavery in this way. Slightly similar, slightly different. All right? So first century slavery follows these patterns. So in Paul in verse 5 then starts talking to slaves. He says, slaves Obey your masters. He calls the masters uh, masters according to the flesh, which literally just means your earthly masters. And the reason why Paul is doing that is because he's going to contrast the difference between their earthly master and their heavenly master, who is Jesus. So these are Christian slaves he's referring to, and he says, Obey your earthly master. What Paul says here is in no way, in no way revolutionary. All right? This would have been expected. Slaves' job is to obey their masters. They are to submit and obey to their masters. But then what Paul adds is revolutionary. What he adds next is unique. He says that slaves are to be obedient to their earthly masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of their heart as to Christ. So what is he saying? That the term in fear and trembling does not mean that when a slave goes in front of his master, he cowers in fear and trembles before him. This is an idiom. And the idiom really just means deep respect. Deep respect. So Paul is saying, have a deep respect for your masters. Not a superficial respect, a deep respect. And then he adds to it in the sincerity of your heart. Which means that this is not a fake or forced or false respect that he's asking these slaves to have for his master. He's saying, no, from the sincerity of your heart, respect those who are in authority over you. 
This would have been challenging for slaves who are used to giving false flattery to their masters in order to gain higher positions and get favorable treatment. This would have been, ooh, that's hard. And if that's not enough, then Paul adds the next line, as if you were serving Christ. Have a deep respect for them, submit to them, in the sincerity of your heart, as you do with Christ. So slaves should not lightly disobey orders from their masters, just like slaves uh, of Christ should not lightly disobey orders from Christ. Then in verse 6, he gives even more clarification about how slaves are to relate to their masters. He says, not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Again, doing the will of God from the heart. I love the way that the NIV puts this, this verse. All right? this is, it makes total sense how they put this. It says, Slaves, obey them, your masters, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you. So in other words, slaves should serve their masters not only when their masters are looking at them in order to gain approval from their masters for their own personal benefit, but at all times. And that's the same way that we should serve Christ as Christians. We don't serve Christ just so that we can get a reward from Christ from our good actions. We serve Him because of what He's done for us. And we do it everywhere. Not just when we're at church and people are looking, or when church leaders are looking, or our church friends are looking. We do it everywhere we go. When we're at church, when we're at work, when we're at home, when we're alone, we serve Christ. We do it because of what He's done for us. He set us free from the slavery of sin and has now given us bondage to Him which leads to eternal life. So in verse 7 and 8, in addition to that, we read that the service that slaves are to render is to be as to the Lord as if you are serving Jesus directly. That's the way he talks about it. Paul says, when slave, when you're serving your master, don't think of it as serving him. Think of it as serving me. Do it in the same way that you would serve me. Also implicit in this thought and in verse 6, at the end of verse 6, is this other revolutionary concept. This would have been revolutionary at the time. Slaves hearing this would have been shocked. shocked. He essentially tells slaves that they should obey their masters as if they obey Christ, but if their masters order them to do something against the will of God, they must obey God first and in so doing disobey their masters. So he is setting up for these people who the true master is. Even though you have an earthly master who owns you, your true master is Christ. So when he tells you to do something that contradicts what your earthly master tells you to do, you obey Christ, not your earthly master, regardless of the punishment. Now verse 8 is important for us to get right in our interpretation. In serving their masters, slaves should do so, it says, knowing whatever good each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. As I said before, we don't serve Christ because of the reward. Yet, yet we are promised a reward. We are promised the reward at the end of the age when all things are consummated, we will receive a reward. But we don't serve Christ for that reason. We serve Christ for what he's done for us. So this would have been confusing for the Christian slave during the day. They're used to doing good deeds in order to gain their master's favor and approval to receive beneficial treatment and reward. And so it would have been challenging for a slave to hear, 
oh man, I have to obey and serve them as I serve Christ all the time. What benefit is that to me? So Paul encourages them by saying, your true master is in heaven and he's watching. And he rewards every good action with good things. Now, we've got to be careful with this verse, verse 8. Taken out of context, this verse can easily fit into the prosperity style type of theology where we assume that God works in a quid pro quo kind of fashion. If, if I do this, then God must do this for me. So this type of theology is, is, is huge in America right now, where people assume that if I give my money to the church, if I give my money and my time to good things, then God must then respond to me by giving me physical resources, wealth, health, and success here on this earth. That is not correct theology, church. Listen to this. If you don't know this, you need to know this. While on earth, we receive no special treatment than anybody else who is on earth. We as Christians are going to face the same hardships because of the sin that has wrecked our world from the beginning. We will face disease We will face trials and loss and financial ruin and ill treatment and pain and suffering. The hope we have as Christians is not the hope that God will repay us here on this earth with material resources and wealth and success and health and good favor. The hope that we have as Christians is that while we go through those things that everybody else goes through alone, Christ is with us. And that we know that at the end of the age, Christ will set all things right. Once and for all, all the scales of justice will be set right. So, our hope is present in that God is with us in the midst, but our hope is also future in that God is going to set everything right in the end. Let's look quickly at verse 9, and then we're going to start to really apply this. As he talks to masters now, those who are owners of slaves in this time. He says in verse 9, Masters, do the same to them, to the slaves, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. In the same way that slaves are encouraged to look for the positive reward when they do good, Paul then uses the negative encouragement to masters. So he says, slaves, do good and you'll receive positive reward, but masters, be careful not to do harm because you'll receive an equal reward to that from God. So Paul says to them, masters, do the same to them, to the slaves. That would have been shocking to hear as a Christian slave owner in this time. Do the same to them? Treat them with kindness as I would Christ? I don't understand. Paul is essentially saying, yes, you're... Slaves are required to obey you, but treat them with kindness. You are obligated to treat them in a similar way, knowing that your master is Christ. And he's looking down on you, and he doesn't care about your status, or your position, or your money, or your authority. He cares about what you do. And so Paul tells the masters to treat their slaves well and right. Don't cause them undue fear and anxiety as they work, threatening them in order to accomplish their tasks. This is not the way that Christ has treated you, 
And so you should not treat others that way as a Christian master. Okay, so here's the tricky part. How do we apply this? Why is this tricky? How many of you, raise your hands, in this room are either a husband or a wife? Okay. How many of you in this room are either a child or a parent? That's everybody. Okay. Now, speaking in terms of not a spiritual sense of being slaves of Christ, but in a worldly sense of actually being owned, how many of you are slave owners or slaves? Okay. The answer is no one. All right. The answer is no one. No one here owns another human being, I hope. And I hope none of you are owned by another human being. All right? Now, in the previous two sections of Ephesians, we have these, these relationships of husband and wife, children and parents that we can all relate to. And when we apply the principles that are given in these passages, we can do a straight one-to-one correlation. This applies the same exact way to husbands and wives as it does then as it does now. Same with children and parents. Same way, it applies to -to one-to-one because the relationship is the same. But what about this passage? Some have attempted to do it with this passage. They simply state that this passage is actually about employers and employees. Okay? This passage is not about employers and employees. It's about slaves and slave owners. Okay? Now, some of the principles can be applied, but you've got to be careful because it's not a one-to-one relationship. What I mean by that is simple. There is a difference between a slave and an employee. Some of you might not think so, but there is a difference between a slave and an employee, and it's very simple. A slave is not free to leave. An employee is. Okay? A slave is not free, and an employee is. Okay? If you are an employee, you chose to work for your job. You signed on the dotted line to work for your boss. At some point. You made that choice and you have the choice to leave. So there is a difference. So think about it this way because all of these are very similar. Biblically speaking, once you enter into the covenant relationship of marriage, are you able to get out of it? Biblically speaking, generally. The answer is no. Okay? There's only really three ways that you say you can get out of a marriage biblically, which is... Adultery, abuse, I would say, and death, all right? So once you're involved in a relationship in marriage, there's no way to get out out of it, biblically speaking. The same is true with children and parents. There's no real way to stop being someone's child or stop being someone's parent. And it's the same thing for slaves and masters. A slave can't really stop being a slave on his own accord. It's different for us as employees, okay? those submitted to other people's authority because we have a choice. So it is different. So how then does this apply? Well, I think it does apply, but the principles apply. We just got to be careful. So I want to first talk to those who are employees. So if you're an employee, this is just, just practical stuff for you. If you have someone who is an authority over you, you have any form of boss whatsoever, here's how some of these principles apply to you. And I want to do this first by saying how it does not apply. Okay, how does, how, what does this passage not say? What does it not say? Okay, it's not telling you that if you don't like your job and if you've been ill-treated, you've got to stay. It's not saying that because this is not a one-to-one ratio. A slave, if their master treated them harshly, had to stay. And Paul is telling them to stay. That's not the case here. We're not obligated to that same thing as employees because we're free. 
if you're being ill-treated in your job and you don't like it, you have the option to leave. There's nothing saying you have to stay. You don't have to obey your boss, there's another one, if he or she asks you to do something that would cause you to violate your Christian character. Okay? He says the same thing to slaves. He says, hey, slave, if your owner tells you to do something that is against what God's will is, don't do it. He's saying the same thing to you. You don't have to obey your boss if he tells you to lie or cheat and steal for him in order to make his business or her business better. Here's another thing this passage does not say. It does not say that you only work hard. You only work hard if you're compensated well. Right? Now, what does this passage say specifically to employees? Here are some things. This is an important one. I think it's very clear how this applies. Respect those who are in authority over you. Respect those who are in authority over you. And what I mean by respect is not cowering submission. I mean respect. Okay? You can respectfully disagree. You can respectfully challenge. You can respectfully say no in certain circumstances, but you should always respect those who are in a position of authority. You always respect. That is a, a mark of Christian character that even though, even if something is wrong, you should respect. Even if they're treating you wrong, respect. And remember, you have the option to leave, but do it out of respect. Your respect should not be eye service or lip service. You're just doing it. Oh, yeah, you're so great. I love you. No, it shouldn't be that way. It should be not forced, not fake, but sincere. You respect the position of authority that they have. You should, as an employee, do the work assigned to you willingly and with enthusiasm as if you were working for the Lord. Submit to their authority and do the work as if you are working towards the Lord. That's what he tells the slave to do and it applies directly the same way. Do the work as if you're serving the Lord. Work hard even when your boss is not looking. Your motive for working hard, for doing work, is not to please your boss. It's not to gain reward from your boss. It's not to get a higher paycheck. It's to please the Lord. That's the way our work should be. You should work diligently without the need for praise and recognition. Praise and recognition is good, but we don't need it as Christians. We have a master who has blessed us with a multitude of blessings. We don't need the praise and recognition. Let's just work. We should only refuse work that you're, when your employee gives it to you if it violates what God has called you to do, what God has commanded you to do. Otherwise, do the work. You can negotiate, you can respectfully challenge, whatever, but you should do the work unless something that God commands you to do, then you need to obey your heavenly master. Now for those that are bosses and managers and all of that stuff, how does this apply to you? You need to treat your employees with kindness, care, and love for that is how your heavenly master has treated you. Show mercy, show grace, compassion, the same time you can hold high expectations you could be just but forgive you'd be honest and true be the example of Christ's actions towards you for others you have a great spot to do that to be the example of Christ's actions towards you for others assign work expect work to be completed but not to the detriment of your people 
Payment is not justification for enslavement. If you're paying someone, you don't own them. Payment is not justification for enslavement. They're people. Do not assign work to your employees that you yourself would deem morally compromising. Do not assign work that may unreasonably harm or cause pain to your employees. Do not assign work that you yourself would be unwilling to do. Do good for those under your authority. For in so doing, God will do good to you. Okay, now with all that being said, we're going to close with this. I don't want you guys to take these things lightly. Okay, so first of all, when I say these things, you may be thinking about someone else. Okay, you may be thinking about someone else other than yourself. Stop it. If you're sitting here going, gosh, that boss of mine, he needs to be here. Stop it. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to yourself. Your responsibility is to yourself. Don't take the log out of someone else. Don't, don't, don't take the splinter out of someone else's eye when you've got a log in your own eye. Okay? So if you're thinking about someone else, stop it. You're responsible for yourself here. Secondly, if you think you're doing pretty good at these things, if I just read this list and you're going, man, I'm doing good, and you gave yourself a little pat on the back, and then you're checking out saying, I'm good, I don't need to do anything else, uh, shame on you. Why? Jesus is our example in both submission to authority and the way that he treated those who were under his authority. Right? If you think you've arrived, you're dead wrong. Keep doing well, but excel still more. There's always more to do, always ways to be better, always room for improvement, especially when Jesus is your example. Always ways to do better, excel still more. Thirdly, if you think this doesn't matter at all, and you'd rather just keep treating your boss the way you treat him or keep treating your employees the way you treat them because you prefer it that way. If you think that your way is better than God's, I fear for you. One day you will stand before your heavenly master. You should do all you can now to please him. For though he is kind, he is just. And lastly, if you're sitting here and thinking these are great lessons for a business or this is just a, a, a talk on business and how to do business, you're missing a major concept, okay? A major concept. The human relationships that God has given us here on earth, marriage, children, parents, siblings, extended family, friends, coworkers, bosses, employees, or church leaders, those sitting next to you in this church right now, have all been given to you as a means for your refining and ultimately as a tool for your continued growth in your relationship with God. That's what they're for. God has given us each other in the vast ways that we have relationship with one another as a means to understand and grow in your relationship with God. He gave us friends and then says that we are friends of God. He gives us enemies and says that you were once enemies of God. He gives us husbands and says, uh, Christ is your bridegroom. He gives us wives and say, says, the church is the body of Christ. He gives us parents and says, I am your heavenly father. He gives us sons and daughters and says, you are my children. In all that he gives us, God is essentially saying, look at these relationships they are a reflection of me, of how I love you, of how I relate to you. When you grow in your relationship with your boss, when you learn to submit to his or her authority, you are in effect learning how to submit to God. 
when you grow in your love and care for your children, God is shouting down to you, I love you more than that. Church, do not forsake the relationships that God has given you. If they are good and positive, rejoice. And see how they reflect God's relationship with you. If they are bad, don't run from them. Press into them. Work on them. Humble yourselves before others. Submit yourselves before others. Show kindness and love and you'll have the tools in your belt you need from when you feel distant from God. When you feel estranged from your Maker, when you feel that you're not in a good spot with Him, you know what to do because you've been practiced in relationships. You've persevered, you've endured, you've sought reconciliation and peace with your fellow man, and you've learned to love it, to seek it, to enjoy it. Then you'll be accustomed when you feel far from God to go after Him, to humble yourselves and submit yourselves and do what is right to restore that relationship. Church, you've been freed from sin. You've been made slaves of Christ. You are His possession because He has purchased you with His blood. You are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has created beforehand that you should walk in them. God has given you every testing ground, every workshop, every field for you to accomplish those good works in the relationships that He has put in your lives. Walk in those relationships well, in the sincerity of your heart, as unto the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have set us free from the bondage of sin, that we no longer have to obey and submit to our own sins in our life, but that we can be freed from sin and call ourselves children of of the Most High God, slaves of Christ. Help us to be obedient first and foremost to you as your slaves, as your servants, Lord. Help us to be obedient to you. And God, we just ask that you would uh, help us to learn from the relationships that you've given us in order to grow in how we relate to you. We pray ultimately, Lord, that you would use each and every relationship in our life, Lord, as a reflection of your character and teach us how we are to relate to you. Help us to grow closer in our walk with you through what you've given us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.